0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. With a Democratic president, some Republicans see opportunity for bipartisanship, especially on the climate.
2: There's some things to be done immediately. I think COVID would be the first thing to do. After that, building back better with clean energy incentives. But then, meanwhile, build consensus for a broader climate package that goes deeper and goes worldwide
0: also ohio voted red for president but its capital columbus went green for renewable energy
3: ballot initiatives like this can make a really big difference in shifting public opinion and also offering residents cheaper rates and more choices for renewable sources of energy and you know taking some power away from the private utility companies who have their interests in making a profit not in protecting the planet and and people's pocketbooks
0: that and more this week on living on earth stick around
1: From PRX in the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill.
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. As we go to broadcast, all indications are that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States, though President Trump had yet to concede. Mr. Biden will take office in the midst of the surging coronavirus pandemic and the climate emergency. Both threats will require a bipartisan effort to address them. During the campaign, Mr. Biden released a clean energy plan aimed at pushing the United States towards a 100 percent clean energy economy and achieving net zero emissions by the year 2050. It's an ambitious goal. And here to talk about how Republicans and Democrats might work together to get there is Bob Inglis. He's a Republican and former U.S. representative for South Carolina's fourth congressional district and leads Republic N, a conservative organization focused on solving the climate crisis. Bob Inglis, welcome back to Living on Earth.
2: Good to be with you, Steve. Thanks very much.
0: So who are some of the strongest Republican leaders you think who will step forward and uh, support President Joe Biden in moving forward a clean energy plan?
2: Yeah, you know, the ones that I look to mostly in the Senate would be uh, Senator Braun of Indiana, Senator Romney of Utah, in the House, John Curtis in Utah. These are Republicans who who have uh, signaled a real willingness to talk about climate change. And of course, back to the Senate, Lisa Murkowski, very importantly, said recently that carbon pricing should be on the table. That was an important signal. So what it will take, I think, is Joe Biden actually reaching out to these senators and House members. And I think there's a real shot at that. Because of the humbler victory that he's won, he doesn't come in with my way or the highway, get out of the way or the train's going to roll over you. It's rather, hey, folks, can we get at the table and find a way to come together on climate change? And I also am putting a lot of stock in Joe Biden's history in the U.S. Senate. But I think Joe Biden has a chance of being a nicer master of the Senate, a guy who has deep relationships there, who understands the place. Of course, he's got more help in the House with the Democratic majority. So the Senate is going to be where his attentions need to be paid.
0: Now, the Biden administration is going to have an inbox that could
2: probably reach to the top of the Washington Monument, just
0: all kinds of things that need immediate attention, it would seem. How will the climate agenda, the climate protection agenda, advance in those circumstances? What do you think is the the best move for the Biden administration to make right away regarding the climate, except, of course, for saying that we're back in in Paris, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, as he said he's going to do.
2: Yeah, that, of course, I think is the thing he does first. I think probably the next thing is build back better in the coronavirus times with infrastructure that focuses on clean energy. He'll find bipartisan support for that. And then I hope what he sees is a real opportunity for a twofer, especially to reward the progressive wing of his party with a pretty bold approach to climate change. And here's what I think that is. It's it's to price carbon dioxide through a carbon tax. And then cut taxes on payroll so that you really are simultaneously addressing climate change and income inequality. And the twofer for his progressive wing is, did you see what I just did? We just gave low and moderate income earners a 12.4% pay raise. So I hope that's what he does. It starts with dealing with clean energy incentives, but then goes worldwide with this uh, kind of carbon tax. Whether you're a conservative or a progressive, everyone agrees that if there's a to be a carbon tax, it needs to be border adjustable so that we apply the tax to imports coming into the very prized American market. If it's coming from a country that doesn't have an equivalent price on carbon dioxide, then the whole world's following. And now you got 7 billion people seeing the true cost of the burning of fossil fuels and the free enterprise system can deliver innovation. And, and of course, some of your listeners might be thinking, oh, okay, Steve has on this guy that's very conservative, and he's talking in high-octane Milton Friedman kind of terms, but they think it may oh, it sounds a little bit familiar. Well, it might be because it's the same thing that Al Gore has been for for about 30 years. Indeed. So what are the climate-related infrastructure
0: projects that you think that the Biden administration should quickly move forward with and that will be not just palatable, but attractive to Republicans and conservatives?
2: I think the electrification of the fleet with charging stations, he's he's mentioned that on the campaign trail, that's uh, surely something that would help more money for battery research. Uh, I mean, we've had uh, great breakthroughs in battery technology, but if we get even better batteries, it'll really make it so that batteries, not natural gas, are the intermittency backup. For wind and solar, right now, natural gas is that backup, and that's the reality of our situation.
0: A number of the folks in the Senate are tied closely to coal, not necessarily by party. Uh, of course, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, but also you have Joe Manchin from West Virginia. And as the coal business has gone away, there's a huge pension problem there. How do you recommend President-elect Biden deal? with the need to bring along the coal states in a way that they will embrace dealing with climate disruption rather than continuing to fight
2: it. Yeah, I think there's a great opportunity to bring America together on this because, you know, I think we can all agree that those miners gave us their lungs, uh, in some cases have already given us their lives to provide energy for us. So we we owe them something. And I think as a conservative that I owe them a buyout of their pensions as their companies go bankrupt and the pension liabilities fail and fail them, then we've got to step in and make those miners whole. And that's a good use of some of the revenue from a carbon tax. And so what that creates is a political reality for people who used to be the representatives of coal country is that those coal jobs clearly aren't coming back. And now the coal companies are going under, and the pensions need to be paid. And so it becomes an opportunity to say, well, yeah, we can have climate action if the climate action takes care of those miners. So I think it's a key constituency, particularly key for Mitch McConnell, presumably the Senate majority leader.
0: And there's a similar situation regarding uh, those communities that uh, have been making their living drilling for oil and and fracking natural gas.
2: Yeah, of course, oil and gas maybe is a little bit further down the track here, where as those better batteries we were just talking about come to be, you know, they're going to be more at risk in the years ahead. That's why companies like BP are so focused on switching away from reliance on selling oil and gas. They're very uh, prescient in that way, seeing what's coming at them and, and trying to figure out a way to continue to be in the energy business, maybe not just selling the same kind of energy.
0: How do you deal with a number of elected
2: officials who don't believe that there's a problem with the climate? I think it's a dwindling number, thankfully. There is a cadre of folks who rejects all the data about climate change, but it's a dwindling number. And one of the reasons it's dwindling, Steve, I think, is a lot of them are having conversations with their children and grandchildren. You know, the grandchild's coming home from State U, and they're saying, you know, Grandpa or Grandma, what you're saying on the Senate floor or the House floor, that is not what they're teaching us at State U. And uh, one of the terrible things about climate change is the realities are upon us. We are seeing the whites of its eyes now. We've got to take a shot. And it has to be a good shot.
0: Bob Inglis was the U.S. representative from South Carolina's 4th Congressional District. He's now executive director of RepublicEN.org. That's a group of conservatives who care about climate disruption. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
2: Great to be with you, Steve. Thanks.
1: The uncertainty of the 2020 presidential election loomed large this year, but several key environmental ballot measures were clearly decided on November 3rd. In Columbus, Ohio, the electorate overwhelmingly voted to pledge the city to run on 100% renewable energy by 2022. Here to explain that decision and several other referenda across the country is Earther staff writer Darna Noor. Darna, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So Ohio as a state went red this year voting for President Trump and having most of their house seats go to Republicans and they're a major fracking state but Columbus Ohio actually approved issue 1 for community choice aggregation it passed in a landslide with 75% of Columbus locals voting yes Could you tell us about that please Darna?
3: Yeah um I think this is a really exciting measure because it'll essentially give the government the power to buy electricity for residents of Columbus instead of utilities choosing. So Columbus specifically is doing this with the goal of powering all homes and businesses with renewables by 2022, which is obviously a really ambitious timeline and one that's you know really in line with the, the best available science. And I think that's possible because it's Columbus, Ohio. It's not you know the entire country or even entire state. Columbus's population is just 900,000 ish people. But I think that, you know, still ballot initiatives like this can make a really big difference in shifting public opinion and also um, really like offering residents cheaper rates and more choices for renewable sources of energy. And, you know, taking some power away from the the private utility companies who have their interests in making a profit, not in, um, you know, protecting the planet and, and people's pocketbooks.
1: And are there any similar ballot measures in any other parts of the country, Darna?
3: Yeah. Actually, another city, um, East Brunswick, New Jersey, also passed uh, Measure 4, which was another ballot initiative to create a community choice aggregation program. Its timeline was a bit less ambitious. Their residents and businesses would have access to 100 percent renewables by 2030. But that's still a, a pretty ambitious timeline. And it is um, you know, in line with what scientists say that we need to, to do in terms of changing our energy sources. So still good.
1: And let's move on over now to Louisiana, where an amendment that would have allowed property tax exemptions for the fossil fuel industry was voted down. Can you explain the goal of this amendment and why blocking it was such a win for environmentalists?
3: Yes, I was really anxiously awaiting the results of this vote. And I was really, really heartened to see that Louisiana voters struck down Amendment 5. Essentially, what this could have done is exempted the fossil fuel industry uh, and the petrochemical industry from having to pay property taxes in the state of Louisiana forever. So this would do so by um, essentially expanding the state's constitution to let local governments start what they're calling cooperative endeavor agreements or payments in lieu of taxes with companies, which would allow companies to stop paying taxes and instead make these comparatively really small payments to the state government. And the main lobbying force behind that measure is Cameron, which is this liquefied natural gas firm, Cameron, like Cameron Parish, the area that saw a really dangerous petrochemical leak when hurricanes roared through the state earlier this year.
1: And so what would the impact have been if this ballot measure had passed?
3: So again, the main lobbying force behind the measure was this liquefied natural gas company, Cameron. And just for instance, Based on their agreement with the state, last year they paid $38,000 in taxes, which seems like a lot. But if they'd had to pay their full taxes, they would have paid $220 million. So it's pretty clear that these payment-in-lieu-of-taxes agreements just allow these polluting companies to get away with paying far less and behave as though they're doing something really great for the people of Louisiana. If this measure had passed, they're agreement could have lasted forever rather than expiring next year and, uh, you know, could be expanded so that many, many other companies could obtain the same kinds of agreements. And that's really important because petrochemical companies and natural gas companies are really, really popular in Louisiana. It's home to multiple petrochemical hubs.
1: So Darna, are there any other ballot measures that you've been keeping your eye on?
3: I guess one that's, you know, a little anticlimactic but good is that question six in Nevada passed. That's going to require the state's utilities to get 50% of their electricity from renewables by 2030. The state actually passed this measure in 2018, but in Nevada, voters have to pass amendments in two election cycles. I think that, you know, this is, as I said, a bit anticlimactic and really shows, you know, sort of the the importance of local measures, but also sort of the, the need for more ambitious ones. 50% by 2030 is not really a quick enough timeline, according to reams of research from, you know, the top climate scientists. By then, we really need to be moving toward 100% renewable energy. Hopefully, this will be a good opening for folks to to push for more ambitious proposals. Um, and sadly, you know, 50% by 2030 is actually more ambitious than many, many places around the country. But hopefully in coming election cycles, um, we will take this far, far more seriously.
1: Darna Noor is a staff writer at Earther from Gizmodo. Darna, thank you so much for taking the time with me today.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. It's time now for a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. He should be on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. How are you doing?
4: Hi, Ainsley. I'm doing all right. Uh, We had a a slight brush here in Atlanta with one of those uh, Greek alphabet hurricanes. Hurricane Zeta passed by this past week. Power was out for a big part of the city, almost out in uh, my building, but we made it through. And let's talk about the rest of the hurricanes down here, starting in Asia with Typhoon Goni, one of the biggest storms on record, although it missed the big population areas in the Philippines. A death toll, but a relatively low death toll, just to show that it's not just the Atlantic where we're setting records, but elsewhere in the world, where some of those frequent severe storms predicted with climate change are a reality. Hurricane Etta was blowing through Central America this week. We've never been farther in the Greek alphabet. The only time we've gotten this far was 15 years ago, 2005, the year of Katrina and Rita. New Orleans and all of Louisiana took a beating this year with five named storms making landfall so far. And nearly another full month to go, the Atlantic hurricane season, is considered to be on until November 30th.
1: Yeah, it's never a good sign when we've moved through the Roman alphabet and now we're on to the Greeks. But tell us, Peter, what else do you have?
4: Oh, yeah, Russia just said forget about it to cutting back on its economically crucial oil and gas production. They say they're going to keep going for decades. They've ruled out cutting back substantially natural gas and natural gas exports to the EU are a huge part of the Russian economy. They say they're gonna pursue carbon capture. No nation has been able to make substantial progress on that to date. And it's a stark contrast to other economic powers on the Pacific Rim. Both South Korea and Japan are right now struggling and pledging to make their way to being carbon neutral within the next 30 years.
1: All right, then, Peter, what do you have from the history books for us?
4: 1975, November 10th, to be exact. I was a freshman in college. There wasn't much made about it at the time. But on November 10th, an iron ore freighter called the Edmund Fitzgerald wrecked and sank in a storm in Lake Superior.
1: Well, I'm not going to lie, Peter. I was definitely not a freshman in college in 1975. But tell me a little bit more about this wreck.
4: Well, you had 20 years to go before you were even a fetus in 1975. Edmund Fitzgerald made regular runs from Duluth, Minnesota, where iron ore was offloaded from the Iron Range in Minnesota, shipped across the lakes to the steel mills in Cleveland. Never made it even halfway to Cleveland. It got caught in an early winter storm. It uh, sank. The crew died. And a year later, it was a hit song by Gordon Lightfoot that made it as a top 40 hit from a Canadian folk singer. That didn't happen very often either.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon.
4: All right, Inslee. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
1: And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org.
4: The legend lives on from the Chippewa home down of
5: the big lake they call Gitchagooey. The lake it is said never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November
3: came early
0: The COVID-19 pandemic is accelerating in the Northern Hemisphere as colder weather settles in. Hospitals and healthcare workers are struggling in many communities, especially in the U.S., where the daily tally of new cases is spiking at record levels. The trend is expected to continue as more activities shift indoors. There is much that science still has to learn about COVID-19, such as why indoor recreational ice hockey has been associated with outbreaks in several states, Not just in the north, but also in Florida, where about a dozen people got COVID-19 after a game at a hockey rink in Tampa Bay. For some advice for getting through winter safely, we turn now to Dr. Aaron Bernstein. He's a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and interim director of Harvard Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Ari. Great to be with you, Steve. So we're seeing coronavirus outbreaks in connection with indoor ice hockey practices, To a greater extent than what's been seen in other sports and activities, walk us through in basic terms, what about the virus might make it more dangerous for these cold weather sports and as the colder weather approaches?
6: Well, I think we're still digging into what's going on in the skating rinks, but the best clues we have right now is that transmission may not be happening as much on the ice, but may be happening off the ice in locker rooms or on the bench when people may take off protective gear or sit too close with each other. We don't really know, but it's pretty clear that since there have been outbreaks in multiple states associated with hockey playing, that there is something about it that matters. But we mostly see in other indoor settings transmission happening when you've got people sticking around each other for long periods of time. And so that makes locker rooms, for example, a prime suspect.
0: How fair is it to assume that the locker rooms are also really pretty cold adjacent to the ice and in the building that's trying to keep the ice there?
6: We do know a couple of things. I mean, what's clear is that sunlight is really good at inactivating the virus. So, you know, ice skating rinks are not in a lot of sunlight, (laughs) whether it's the ice or the locker room. That's true, obviously, of any indoor environment. So the ultraviolet piece seems to be a pretty strong signal. In terms of temperature and humidity, it gets kind of messy. And that's one of the reasons why the winter people are concerned, because particularly here in the Northern Hemisphere, there's a lot less ultraviolet radiation hitting us from the sun.
0: So as we move into winter uh, of course historically the influenza virus seems to do much better in the winter. What parallels can we draw between the influenza virus and the novel coronavirus in terms of transmission in this cold part of the year?
6: Well I think the big deal in winter transmission of viruses that are transmitted by you know coughs and sneezes and and the droplets they can leave on surfaces is that people tend to gather indoors a lot more in the winter. That's a risk factor for any of these viruses. And so when I think about the winter, I do think we need to pay close attention to places where we're asking people to congregate and being careful about the appropriate precautions to ensure that we're not having you know unnecessary spread. I mean, it's, it's we're breaking records in transmission as we speak, and there's a great risk that this virus can spread through the winter. The idea has been floated that herd immunity will protect us is reckless and dangerous, and we can do a tremendous amount even now to reduce. We can't eliminate at this point, but we can reduce the amount of spread through the basic measures that leaders in public health have been talking about for a long time now.
0: What's the best thinking about how communities can protect their most vulnerable members during this time of rising numbers of these cases, rising exposure, apparently better conditions for the virus.
6: Yeah, Uh, you know, it probably is sounding completely boring and beating a dead horse, but it's the same dull stuff that folks have been talking about for a long time. It's wearing a mask, it's washing your hands, it's keeping physical distance. And those measures can have a dramatic effect upon the spread of the disease you know, there are people anguishing a lot right now about what's safe in terms of, you know, should we go to place A, B, or C? And that is entirely dependent upon the spread of the disease in the community. If you're living in a place, you know, right now we have tremendous case burdens in the upper Midwest in particular, you know, the risks of doing the things that people think about doing are much higher when you have higher case counts in the community, even with those protective measures. But, you know, I think a lot of people, including folks like Tony Fauci and other public health leaders, have strongly advised people to not gather in person because the risks are are growing so great, because the reality is that we have more cases today in the country than almost any other time. And the signs are this winter, it may not get better quickly. So now, to what extent
0: do things change if a vaccine becomes widely available in the next few months?
6: Yeah, well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that we hopefully will have an effective vaccine in the next few months, but it's clear that that most people will not have access to that well into 2021. And so we can't really bank on that as a way to get us out of this mess in the next few months of this year, and probably not in the first few months of the next year. We also have an issue in which there are many people in the country who, who don't want to vaccinate, and that's you know a real challenge because again the risk isn't just to the the individuals who don't vaccinate it's to the people who live in their communities and you know it's as a pediatrician you know we deal with this concern all the time which was we don't have many but there are some families who do not want to vaccinate their children or don't want to vaccinate on the usual schedule or want vaccine one versus vaccine two and these are obviously concerns for the child. We don't give these vaccines because the diseases aren't a problem. We give them because the diseases are a big problem, <laughs> but it's very much a concern for the people they live with. I have more stories than uh, I would ever want to know about a family who did not vaccinate, their children got sick and their children are okay, but they infected someone else's children and those children were not okay. And who really wants to live with that sense of you know, grief? that we have a uh, vaccine-preventable diseases and that, you know, by not getting ourselves vaccinated, we put other people at risk who are, you know, don't do as well. And I think that's very much the case with the coronavirus. You know, we see now high rates of transmission among people who are younger, who tend to be okay, but those infections don't limit themselves to geographic borders or political parties or religions or anything. (laughs) So we just have to remember that Part of our action here is it not just for ourselves, it's for the people who live in our country and, and, you know, our communities. And beyond that, you know, it's making sure that people get their flu vaccines, right? So people don't see those two as connected, but they're actually very much connected. So we're gonna have a flu epidemic this year, like we do every year. We can hope that it is not a bad flu year. We don't know yet, but it's gonna come and there's a vaccine. And the reason they're connected is that we know we're going to have a tremendous burden of coronavirus cases. We already see in many states hospital beds essentially being at max capacity. Well, that's what happens in a bad flu season. So if you take the current coronavirus season and you add to it even a mild flu season, there are no hospital beds for people to go into. We can do a lot more now today than we could at the start of this virus to Keep people who get sick enough to be hospitalized from getting severely ill. But if we're picking and choosing hospital beds and don't have hospital beds, it makes our lives as healthcare providers majorly more difficult. So, I, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to get vaccinated for the flu because they think it's not that bad or they think the flu vaccine doesn't work and neither of those things are true. And so this is really an issue of protecting healthcare resources, not to mention protecting yourself and your family. And again, the flu is a major factor in severe illness in people who are older. So in one of the populations that's really at risk from coronavirus, they're also really at risk for the flu. And so, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not over 65 and I have to get vaccinated because I work in healthcare, but even if I didn't, I would recognize that if I wanted to protect my family, I should be getting vaccinated against the flu to protect people who are older than me, my family members who may have cancer, my family members who may be pregnant. You know, think about it. If you have a family member who's pregnant, they often need to go to a hospital. Do you really want them to go to a hospital in which the hospital's overwhelmed with preventable influenza infections? No. Do you obviously... (laughs) So that's how these things uh, tie together pretty quickly.
0: Ari Bernstein is a pediatrician at Children's Hospital in Boston and directs the Climate Health Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Bernstein, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
6: Thanks for having me, Steve.
1: Coming up, climate disruption as a threat multiplier for marginalized people. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. While the climate crisis poses grave risks for all, It also increases the gap between the privileged and the marginalized. Already, the global south is disproportionately affected by some consequences of the warming planet like food insecurity and nutrition deficiencies. Rising seas and increasingly intense natural disasters threaten the world's poorest people in a vicious cycle of devastating the already devastated. Tales of Two Planets, Stories of Climate Change and Inequality in a Divided World is a collection of poems, Short stories, essays, and reportage about the relationship between social inequality and the climate emergency. I'm joined now by the editor of the anthology, author John Freeman. John, welcome back to Living on Earth.
5: So happy to be back.
1: So, first things first, what inspired you to collect all of these stories about climate change in the first place? And what's the biggest thing that you hope readers will take away from this book?
5: Well, I feel like, as a lot of climatologists believe, our solutions to the climate crisis have to be collective. We can't recycle and eat less meat and drive our cars less to get our way out of the coming collapse of many of our ecosystems. We have to come up with large-scale changes. And key to that is understanding that decisions we make in parts of the world that seem mildly or even just a small amount of inconveniently affected by climate change can have an outsized effect on the other side of the globe, and that the climate crisis has been going on for decades now in parts of South Asia, in the Far East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Central America. So I wanted to put out a a call to writers around the globe to say, okay, well, what does the climate crisis feel like where you are? And 35 of them came back with truly amazing stories of a huge variety. Some of them wrote fables, some of them wrote reportage, some of them wrote personal stories, some of them wrote about rivers, some about glaciers. And I think what emerges is a kind of prismatic glimpse of what the climate crisis feels like around the globe now. And I think reading it, I hope readers will appreciate that we're all in this together. There is no higher ground ultimately for some of us. And uh, actually, even if you could make that decision, would you?
1: For this book, you collaborated with writers all over the globe. You called it prismatic, and I feel like that's a really accurate statement. What was that like, and why do you think a global perspective on climate change is so important?
5: It was exciting, to be honest, to be able to speak to people in all the different hemispheres about a problem that I feel deeply about, and I certainly feel is affecting many of our lives in America. But to hear from writers who are essentially living in the future and to hear them describe the adaptations they've had to make, the ways that their societies have changed, and to realize, you know, in this country, we've been living through a spasm of nationalism, in the middle of which, at the highest levels of government, there's been incredibly damaging and actually dangerous rhetoric about people coming to this country from places that are no longer sustainable or that are unsafe. And to realize that the US is not alone in that. I knew that academically, intellectually, but to read pieces from writers around the world and to see that migration is a big and an important subject within the climate crisis and to see its effect on government and lived experience, it made me feel actually hopeful. It made me realize that what we're living through is not exceptional, that it is part of a symptom of fear, a symptom of Cynicism and really an expression of, of lack of hope. This feeling that there's not enough for everybody, when there is, as long as we make some serious changes in how we live, and to see that writers around the world were willing to contribute to a collective project like this book, to move that dialogue forward, it ended up making me feel, for the first time, <laughs> in in this season of you know pandemic and political crisis and mendacity, it made me feel.
1: Hopeful. You mentioned COVID. Obviously, it's what's on all of our minds these days. How could it not be? The book explores the relationship between inequality and the environment and how that all combines to affect our lives. How is this relationship especially relevant during the pandemic? And are there any stories that you wished were featured in the book about that?
5: I do, in the sense that I live in New York City and the death rates from COVID were drastically different based on what borough you lived in. And Queens was among the highest. That's where many of the people were dying in hospitals. And it was terrible to think that the lottery of your birth was determining, by and large, the lottery of your own death in the middle of this crisis. That's an unacceptable equation for any kind of functioning civic society. Because if there's anything a society agrees upon, it's the idea that we're better together. And so in, in, in this book, there are lots of stories in which people do things because they have no other choice. So, for example, there's a piece by Mariana Enriquez, who's an Argentine short story writer. She lives in Buenos Aires, and there's a river that goes through it, the city called Rio Cholo, which is deeply polluted along its banks. It's where the slaughterhouses used to be. In fact, the river is called the, the River Slaughter. And many people that live there now have no other choice where to live. They come there from the north of Argentina, leaving where they have a cultural and psychological connection to the landscape, coming to a big city, and they end up in a place that's slightly unhygienic and is dangerous to their own health. And the politics of poverty and health are deeply connected to the politics of climate change. Because, you know, To go to the other extreme, we're watching as the world tilts towards billionaires and their favor. Many of them are buying up huge properties and plots of land in New Zealand to create bolt holes in case the apocalypse arrives as if it hasn't already arrived in some kind of slow motion form. And meanwhile, you know, many people cannot leave where they are. They don't have the choice. They are stuck with the reality of their landscape There's another piece in here by Juan Miguel Alvarez, who's a Colombian journalist, and he describes people not leaving their homes in Colombia when they're being warned of impending landslides. And that's because they can't. Dialogue about the climate crisis does have to absolutely engage with the structural inequalities of wealth and the distribution of resources within societies. Otherwise, we're living in a fantasy because it is so much easier for someone who has too much. To give up things as someone who has very little to give up something that's connected to their daily life that's instrumental to it
1: one of the stories that is included in this is the short story survival by Sayake murata set in a dystopian futuristic version of japan and it's all about people who are trying to sort of buy themselves more time on earth increase their chances of survival it deals with that story that you talk about, the, the lottery of your birth. Can you explain that story for our listeners, please?
5: Really, it's a story of star-crossed lovers in which a couple meet and one of them has a very high survival rating in the 80% range. And then the woman who he fancies and who's really more the heroine of the story has a C-minus, a C-, I believe. And what do you do in that circumstance? And I think what I love about Saak writing, and in this story in particular, is the climate crisis can seem, even in the middle of extreme weather events like we have now, as an abstract thing. But like all events, they become far less abstract when someone we care about is involved in them. And there's nothing more involving than love. So what would you do if you couldn't be with the person that you wanted to be with simply because of that sort of arbitrary lottery of survival? And that is the world that we live in, that if you were born in Calcutta versus Cleveland, the chances of your survival in a climate crisis are are very different. And I love the story because it brings it to the most near and dear part of ourselves, which is the part that wants to give and receive love.
1: I think it's especially impactful because when you look at it, it's dystopian. You think there's no way that anyone would be getting graded on their survival ability But at the same time, you read more about it and you read how it's connected to somebody's, you know, lot in life when they're born and how well they do in school and how well they do in college. And it really touches home in a way that it feels actually right around the corner.
5: Yeah, I mean, think about how our schools are slotting kids into regular remedial and honors programs. And those honors programs probably make it easier to get into colleges and get exposed to pre-college admission testing and practicing. And you're absolutely right. We're living in a society that is highly structured. In this country, in the United States, we, we've come up with mythologies that help us deal with the brutality of that structure. And one of those mythologies is the American dream. And we we believe in the exceptional person, someone like Barack Obama, someone like Michael Jordan, who, in spite of certain odds against their promotion in society, rises above and becomes truly, gracefully, profoundly beautiful at what they do. And we can't rely on the small numbers of people who do that to grade whether we're doing okay in equality. For every Michael Jordan or Michelle Obama or, you know, Saaka Marata, were she to live in this country, there's gonna be a lot of other people who aren't succeeding because of that structure.
1: The story touches on the idea of buying time on Earth, making your situation in life better in order to just keep going as long as you can. To what extent does it feel like we are all buying time right now?
5: Deeply. I mean it's scary. I think there's a really profound disquiet because we're living in a world that feels currently in an interregnum. We're all in the middle of this pandemic. We don't know when it will end. It's very hard to make plans. And then beyond that, there's not clear open skies. A lot of students that I work with as a, as a teacher, they're terrified of their future and rightfully so. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you could presume that the world would be there. <laughs> until the end of hopefully a very long life. And, and now, you know, given the scale of weather events and, and the climate crisis, it's very difficult to imagine a stable future.
1: So one of the poems that really stood out to me in this was Margaret Atwood's Tracking the Rain. Would you mind reading some of that out loud for us?
5: Of course, it's, it's a pleasure too. This is called Tracking the Rain. A mist of thin, fat yellows the air. We breathe hot pudding. The leaves in the garden are crisp like antique taffeta. The former garden, a touch and they shatter. Forget the lawn, the former lawn. Though the dandelions prosper, they've outlasted our flimsy hybrids. Their roots grip baked clay. All day it's pending, the rain. It gathers, it withholds. We thumb our touchscreens, consulting the odds on the radar maps. Green puddles flow from west to east, vanishing before they hit the dot that's us. A stretched red dot like a comic book voice, devoid of words, like an upside-down teardrop. That's where we're living now. Inside this dot, the color of a heated toaster. Inside this dry red bubble. We stand on the non-lawn, arms outstretched mouths open. Will it be burn or drown? Though we've forgotten the incantation, the chant, the dance, we invoke a vertical ocean. Pure blue, pure water, let it come down.
1: And now for one of the biggest questions, what are we waiting for? What is this poem saying we're waiting for?
5: I think it's saying we're waiting for some sort of divine intervention. You know, we've all sort of slipped into magical thinking. For the longest time, humans looked up at the sky for some sort of sign, some sort of signal, some sort of signal from the gods to say, this is what will happen. This is what to do. And that part of our brains, that part of our species is deep. Even though we've lived through and created the enlightenment and all the ideas that came out of it, we still have this atavastic, antediluvian part of our our minds that craves mythic direction. And yet the thinking part of our our minds, I think, knows very well that we've created this situation. We've created this drought. We've created this lack of rain. We've created this sort of digital world which treats everything like a commodity. And so we have to be ready to take responsibility for the world we've created. There is no magical being coming to rescue us now. It, It has to be us.
1: The short story Dusk by Lauren Groff, it focuses on a life that maybe feels a little more close to home for many of us here in the United States, a middle-aged American housewife suffering from depression. She's someone in a position of environmental privilege, but she still feels powerless, not in control of her environment. Could you tell us a little bit about that story and why that perspective was something you felt should be included?
5: Absolutely. I think no matter where we are in the world, maybe even Jeff Bezos feels this way. But I know a lot of us feel powerless to change the scale of what's coming for us. And so we deflect and we project. This character in Lauren Gross story is living at home, has a couple kids, her husband works, she does not, and raises the children. And so she starts paying attention to this neighbor next door who's a lot younger and has a lot more freedom and is flamboyantly environmentally unfriendly. She keeps buying things on the internet and throwing the recyclable boxes in the trash and the character gets more and more agitated and she latches on to this neighbor and and what she's doing. And I think that's one of the the symptoms of of our time is when we feel powerless and you can feel powerless if you have wealth too. Or if you have relative privileges like running water and a flushing toilet. And in that environment, I think um, we tend to project and, and lash out. And it's a story about, in some ways, the breakdown of dialogue between generations as well. You know, for the younger character in this story, the future is abstract. It's over there. It's for old people to worry about. And plus, the old people have screwed it up anyway. Why should she change what she does? She's here to have a good time. And that's a very, in some ways, valid feeling in a world that has been created by all the generations which have preceded the young, for them to look to us and say, you know what? You created this mess. You know, could you help us a little bit or at least get out of my way while I try to have some fun before it implodes?
1: As you've mentioned, there's a multitude of different forms of writing in this. There's fiction, nonfiction, poetry, prose, essays, etc. How do those help us understand climate change? And what do you consider the power of literature on us as a species?
5: That's a good question. Imagine if every time you went to the movies, you only saw documentaries. And imagine if every time you went to the movies, you only saw documentaries about climate change. And so, yeah, maybe there was David Attenborough and there there were some other things. But after a while, you'd get, okay. I'm feeling a bit heavy here. Like, just let me dream. And in some ways, that's hopefully how this book works. I mean, there are documentary pieces, you know, reportage that don't just tell you facts, but they tell them in the context of a person's life. And then there are pieces of fiction, which basically enchant you into dreaming about an alternate or similar world to ours. And then there are pieces like poetry, which, you know, is intimate. You know, it's closer, it's meant to be spoken aloud. And so it has a obvious and instant connection to the body, to the tongue, which is one of our strongest muscles next to the heart. So I think when you put together a book about something as multifaceted and, and intense and ongoing as the climate crisis, why not bring all the different genres and all the different textures of of thought and belief and, and imagination that they can handle? Because if you only rely on facts and facts alone, I think a fact starts to be leached of the power of a fact after a while. A fact, in order to be a fact, I think has to be embedded in a story and then you can hold it.
1: John Freeman is an author and he's the editor of Tales of Two Planets, stories of climate change and inequality in a divided world. Thank you, John.
5: It's a pleasure.
0: Next time on Living on Earth, tiny bits of plastic are being applied to cropland with troubling results.
3: There's been a a suite of recent studies that have shown changes to the soil's ability to retain water, truncated plant growth, and they found impacts in earthworms.
0: Tune in to learn about the growing problem of polyester fibers and other microplastic particles being applied to farmland. That's next time on Living on Earth. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablo, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mott, Jake Rigo, Casey Troost, and Yolanda Omari.
1: Tom Tiger engineered our show. Alison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at loe.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth,